1 Corinthians 14, starting at verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestation to the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then 
They will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enters, will they not say, you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Well, what would it look like for spiritual things to happen as we gathered as a church? On one of my neighbor's bookshelves the other day, I saw they had a pretty wide range of books about various kinds of spiritual things. Many in the world are looking for spiritual experiences. But what does a truly spiritual gathering look like? Well, the setting in chapter 14 here is a meeting of the Corinthian church. They've gathered together, and it looks like they're speaking, and it seems that they're speaking all at once, using the gift of tongues in different languages. And they think that this is the pinnacle of the spiritual meeting. But Paul wants them actually to rein back this practice and to use their gifts in their proper place when they meet together. Because Paul really wants this church to be truly spiritual. So verse 1 of our passage, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Where Paul says earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, well that phrase can be literally translated spiritual things, earnestly desire spiritual things. And given Paul immediately talks then about especially desiring prophecy, you can see why it's translated there as spiritual gifts. But that phrase spiritual things, well, it's it's a term that comes again and again right through the letter. You can see some of the references there on your handout, beginning in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 9. And Paul uses it Because he's teaching the Corinthians what it means to be spiritual. How to live together as God's people in whom his spirit dwells. And so chapter 2, if you just flick back to chapter 2, page 147. In chapter 2, Paul says, well, look, to be spiritual is to listen to and accept his message, his apostolic word, God's revealed mysteries, the message of the cross of Jesus. So verse 12 Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths, spiritual things, to those who are spiritual. And then we see in chapter 3, he goes on to, to explain to us, well, what a spiritual ministry looks like, and his call is to imitate him. 3 verse 10, it's a concern to build the church with the gospel word. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds. 
And so Paul is describing his ministry, his spiritual behavior. In chapter 9, verse 11, he says, we've sown spiritual things among you. And last week in chapter 13, where we saw the mark of the Holy Spirit, love, to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, using gifts to build up others in the church. And so with that in mind, as we come to chapter 14, well, it shows us that what's going on here, Paul's overarching call to action in this chapter, is not so much that we build up the biggest gift portfolio, but it's that we shape our lives together in a truly spiritual way. He wants us to earnestly desire for the gospel word to abound so that the church is built up. And with that desire in place, well, that will guide us as to how we use the gifts God gives us and for what we ask him for. So what will it look like for spiritual things to happen as we gather? Well, Paul says, well, you'll want there to be prophecy so that the church is built up. So that's our first point, especially prophecy, so that the church may be built up. And what we find here is Paul goes straight into a contrast between tongues and prophecy. So what we'll do is we'll look at the contrast first, and then we'll aim towards some definitions on tongues and prophecy. So the contrast, verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So what are the outcomes of speaking in tongues or speaking words of prophecy? Well, the trouble with tongues is that nobody hearing them understands them. They're clearly speech. They're speaking to God. We see that. They have gospel content. That word mysteries in 1 Corinthians refers to God's gospel revelation. But those who hear and can't understand, well, it doesn't build them up. That's not to say it's a worthless gift, though. Paul is clear. The one who speaks in tongues builds up himself. It does good to the speaker. There's a sense that, at least in the private sphere, it is doing something to strengthen and to build. Paul says it's a good gift to have. In fact, in verse 5, he says, I want you all to speak in tongues. He thinks it's a good thing. When he says, I want you all to speak in tongues, that doesn't mean that if you don't have that gift, you are lacking. In some churches and evangelistic courses, it's taught that speaking tongues is the key mark of being a truly spirit-filled Christian. But that's profoundly wrong. It creates a two-tier church, those with and those without. And Paul's been really clear with us in chapter 12. Every Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. We're filled with the Holy Spirit as soon as we trust in Jesus and surrender to him as Lord. And we saw in chapter 13, but it's not tongues or gifts that are the mark of the Spirit. It's love. So Paul says, speaking tongues, it's a good gift. Use it if God gives it to you. But we need to understand that without interpretation, it's no help to building up others. What Paul wants, his thrust, if you like, is that if we're earnestly desiring spiritual things when we meet, we'll be thankful for tongues, but we'll be eager for prophecy. 
So that's verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And just consider those words for a minute. The fruit of prophecy there, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It builds up the person who hears it. It encourages. It brings consolation when times are hard. It ultimately builds up the church. Verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. If we desire spiritual things, the building up of the church will be eager for prophecy. So what are tongues and prophecy? Well, let's consider some definitions. Tongue speaking and prophecy, well, they're not fully defined here. So we need to use what we've got here in chapter 14, and we consider it then in the context of the whole letter and in Scripture more widely as we think about this. I've put a box with some references, some places to look up. They're not going to go through them all now, but they might be places to consider later as we keep thinking about these things. And as we come to a section like this concerning spiritual gifts, I'm conscious there'll be a range of experiences among us, personal experiences and different views. But whatever the nuances of our views on tongues or prophecy, I hope we'll see this morning that the main thrust of Paul's message to us doesn't change. Paul wants us to be speaking words together as we gather that build up the church. And that is a truly spiritual concern. So tongues. Well, verse 2 The one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. The word for tongue can mean the tongue in your mouth, um, but it can mean language, Hebrew, Greek, English, Cantonese. And that's really key. In chapter 12, verse 10, the gift is of various kinds of tongues. So it's come from God. There are various kinds. It's speech. It carries real information. There's gospel content, mysteries proclaimed. And the only other place in the New Testament that describes something like this is Acts 2. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascended to heaven. And then in chapter 2, he gave his Holy Spirit, as promised, to equip his people to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And when the Spirit came upon the disciples gathered in Jerusalem... Well, they were able to speak in all kinds of languages. Acts 2 says they were dwelling, there there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So I think we're on sure footing, if you like, to say tongues are human languages given as gifts, which it seems that the speaker either doesn't understand or at least can't interpret to others, but human languages, as we see in Acts chapter 2. Could they be angelic languages? Well, chapter 13, verse 1, Paul says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. So there's a possibility that it could be an angelic language. But I wonder if chapter 13, verse 1, is particularly Paul using a rhetorical language device, exaggerating to make his point, as if to say, even if I could speak 
in the tongues of angels. So there's a possibility there. Either way, we're definitely on surest grounds with human languages. Tongues. Well, what about prophecy? Well, I think this is where seeing the chapter in the context of the book is really helping, about that earnest desire for spiritual things. Because we see that throughout the letter, spiritual things refers to words and behavior rooted in the apostolic words, gospel words that encourage, console, and build up. And we'll see later in the chapter that even brings salvation. And so prophecy here has to be connected with words full of gospel content that are connected to the scriptures which build the church. It's worth being clear that it's not the same prophecy being spoken of here as that that we see in the Old Testament because it doesn't have the same authority. So the Old Testament prophets spoke God's spirit-inspired words. Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and all the others, inspired by God's spirit to bring his authoritative revelation. So we might call that, if you like, capital P prophecy. And this revelation was completed in Jesus, the direct word of God. Those of us who've been studying Hebrews in small groups this year will be familiar with those verses. Hebrews 1, chapter 1, um, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Spoken, a past tense word. God's revelation complete in and through Jesus. And Jesus himself promised his Holy Spirit who would remind his apostles of his revelation. And so we find that phrase in the New Testament, we heard it read to us earlier, the apostles and prophets. And when it comes together, it speaks of God's final, complete, authoritative word, the foundation of the church. I think that's what we see in chapter 12, verse 28, as we read God appointing in the church, first apostles, second prophets, capital P, prophecy. God's gifts given to the church to reveal his word to us. And then the gift of teachers to teach it and many other gifts for our common good. So what we've got here in chapter 14, it's not capital P prophecy. It doesn't have that authority. So maybe we call it small p prophecy. And that's helpful for us because I think it rules out somebody claiming to be a prophet and saying things like, God has told me that you must do this or that. The implication being if you disagree with that person, well, you're opposing God. Because that can be very manipulative, can't it? There's a potential for power play there. Only scripture has that authority. Prophecy here in chapter 14, also I don't think is necessarily preaching, because there's a sense in the chapter that it's for lots of us to be involved in to be asking God to do this. And we see elsewhere in chapter in, in the New Testament that teaching is a gift given, a, the role of pastor-teacher to build up the church. So prophecy here flows from Scripture. It's a spiritual thing that builds the church. We'll see next week it's to be weighed against Scripture, and it's for all people to be engaging in. Chapter 11 made it clear, men and women in the church fully involved, laboring together interdependently, to build up the church. And so I wonder if what we have described here, well, is speech that God enables, that takes what's heard or read or taught and considered, 
in the scriptures and responds and applies it into the life of the church and to one another. So think of last week's interview with Kareen and Phil, sharing words that responded to what God's word said, what had been taught, considered, prayerful, applied. Words that encouraged and built up. Prophecy. It happens in our small groups in IGG and Central Focus. We gather, we consider God's word, we apply it, we make connections, knowing what another's lives were able to bring encouragement, to build up, to console, as we bring God's word to bear. It takes place in youth RML, it takes place in Junction, it takes place in women on Wednesday groups. It happens in church council meetings as different people apply scripture to decisions. It happens in many settings in the church. And whilst the minimal data in chapter 14 means we've got to work hard to understand it, well, I think actually it's very freeing when we come to think about what it might look like. It's something we can all be involved in with the different people we are, the different personalities we have. It's not just for talkative people. In fact, Paul will go on to say in many cases, you might want to stay quiet so that you can listen to what someone else has to say. And so I think Paul would say to us, if you're eager for spiritual things, then ask God to give you words to say as you meet with one another that will build up the church. As you prepare to come on Sunday or to small group or for junction tonight, it's not so much worrying about, have I got the gift of prophecy? It's more like praying, Father, if it's your will, please give me words to say that will build up the church. And that's where Paul goes next. Because building up the church needs intelligible words. That's our second point. If we're concerned for spiritual things, Paul says, well, rein back the tongues that hearers don't understand and have great concern for words they can. Verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Paul wants words that build. There's prophecy and there are more. There's revelation, there's knowledge, there's teaching. Intelligible words. Because if the words can't be understood, well, there's no benefit. Verse 7. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? I was at, uh, used to play the trumpet when I was a teenager and at secondary school. Me and three other uh, trumpeters had to go outside on the cold on November the 11th for Remembrance Day to the four corners of the grounds, sink our watches, and the idea was at 11 o'clock we'd all play the last post and the sound would resonate around the site. Well, one year back in class afterwards, how did it sound? Oh, you were all out of sync. <laughs> indistinct. And verse 8, if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? My dad tells me that uh, he was in the army cadets at school and he used to have to get up to play Revali, the bugle call to wake everybody up. But if it's not clear, if it's just a fuzzy noise, well, there's no response. Sleepy cadets. And Paul says it's the same with speech. Verse 9, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what's said? If you'll be speaking into the air. No benefit. 
And so Paul pushes the point home in verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Perhaps if you're anything like me, when you're in a country where you don't know the language, you like to try and give the impression for at least a while that you do know it, and that you know what's going on. But it very quickly falls apart when someone speaks to you. The moment those words come out of their mouth, they could be saying anything. Are they asking directions, or are they telling me to run for my life? I don't know. We're foreigners to each other. And some of us here may know that feeling particularly well in a, in a city that's not your home city, being here from overseas. Sometimes it's hard to know what's being said. Now, Paul says words have meaning, but if you don't have, know the meaning, they don't have power. Verse 11, where it says that, the, for I do not know the meaning of the language, that word for meaning is the word for power. No meaning, no power, no benefit. So Paul summarizes, if you want to see the spirit at work in power in your meeting, if you want there to be spiritual things or desire gifts that build Verse 12, so with yourself, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel, to literally abound in building up the church. Intelligible words, abounding in the work that builds. That word for abound comes up once again in Corinthians, in 15, chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. So Paul says, hold back the tongues, desire prophecy. But are there any place for tongues in the gathering? Well, Paul says, only with interpretation, verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with, I'll pray with my mind also. I'll sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. It needs to be an interpretation, the mind engaged. In Corinth, the temple cults were full of clang and bang of cymbals. There was plenty of noise. But the idols themselves were mute. No speech to engage the mind. And Paul says, you're not like that. Remember, you're God's temple. His spirit dwells in you. Be eager for his work amongst you. If you have the gift of tongues, don't use it in the gathering unless you have an interpretation. Because we want to engage the mind. We'll think more about interpretation next week, but that's the principle. You need... To build one another up, you need words that engage the mind. And so Paul summarizes to get these things in proportion. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul is positive about tongues. He gives thanks to God for them. We can be positive about God's gifts, but Paul doesn't want them in the gathering uninterpreted. And the ratio is massive, isn't it? It would take me about an hour and a half to, take, to say 10,000 words, but Paul says five clear words about Jesus 
better than 10,000 in tongues. Jesus is Lord and Savior. Better than 90 minutes of tongues. And in fact, that word for 10,000 is basically just the biggest numerical word available to Paul. It means countless, immeasurable, innumerable. And so if we ask God to give us a few words to speak together that respond to the scriptures and engage the mind, it will build the church far more than countless words in a language we don't understand with no interpretation. And a priority like that, well, a proportions like that, that is to love one another. It's to earnestly desire spiritual things. It's grown-up thinking which builds up the church. And not only does it build up the church, but it builds out the church. That's our final point. It does the building out of the church. We saw last week a theme that runs through the letter, Paul calling the Corinthians to stop behaving like children and to imitate him. And so grown-up thinking will ask God to give us words to speak that build one another up. And as we do it, we will be given words to speak to build up and build out the church, to bring salvation in Jesus. Verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Paul's quoting from Isaiah, from Isaiah 28, where God's people, Israel, have been refusing to listen to Isaiah's clear message. And the Lord's calling them to turn back from idolatry, back to him. And Isaiah has brought them a simple, plain, clear message. And they mock it and they say it sounds foolish and babyish. And because they wouldn't listen to God, well, he warned them of a judgment to come. And the judgment came with the sound of strange languages, a Syrian invasion. And so Paul says a surprising and I think perhaps a shocking thing. If all you do is speak in unknown languages in your meeting and someone who's not a Christian joins you, it's like you're speaking judgment to them. Verse 22, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? Perhaps you're looking in on Christian things this morning. You're really welcome among us. And if everyone here was speaking all at the same time in different languages that you didn't understand, what would you think? It's sometimes suggested that a meeting like that would actually be so impressive it would persuade someone to follow Jesus. But Paul says it won't. Because you won't hear anything of the saving work of Jesus and you may well think we're a bit mad. Because it's not loving to the unbeliever, is it? It's actually pronouncing a sign of judgment on them. It's a very visible and audible statement to say, you're outside. You don't know what's going on. But prophecy is for believers, and it's to be used to build the church up and to build it out. Verse 24. But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he is called account by, to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God 
and declare that God is really among you. It's a great, beautiful picture of salvation. And the language of God being among you is not about God being more present with us when we gather together than he is when we're apart. It's about being clear that we are his people. It picks up Isaiah again. As God rescues Israel out of exile, the nations watch on and they see that Israel's God is the true saving God. And they say, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God beside him. And so in the same way, hearing intelligible words about the good news of Jesus will bring some to turn to acknowledge that the God of the Bible is the true living God and his son Jesus Christ is saviour and Lord. And so surrender to him. Falling on his face, he will worship him. And I can think of many who sat in small group Bible studies, some who've come along on Sundays just listening in and over time been able to consider the claims of Jesus. People have spoken to them his words, and some have come to know him as Saviour and Lord, to know his love now and for eternity. And so as we ask the Lord to help us speak gospel words to one another, well, Paul says it will have the effect of bringing some to know the wonderful salvation of the Lord. If we want to show love for visitors among us, we want our meetings to be shaped around God's word and full of the speech that flows from it. So perhaps you are looking in on things this morning, Christian things. I hope you'll hear things that engage your mind. And you'll hear from us, church family, words which show you the living God is among us. You won't find us perfect, but our goal is to imitate Paul, to be mature in our thinking, to pursue love, to be eager for spiritual things, especially prophecy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words given to us through the prophets and apostles. Thank you for the gifts you give to us to build up your church. Please help us as we gather to be thinking maturely, to pursue love, to desire real spiritual things, especially prophecy, that your church might be built up and your salvation known to many more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.